I believe that copywriters suffer from a particular kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. It comes from the fact that anyone who knows the language feels qualified to edit their copy. They deliver the best work, well-researched, designed to persuade, and then their work is edited by anyone and everyone. The red marks are like wounds bleeding onto the page. Too often the metaphors, symbolism, and structure are amputated out of the prose. In their place are industry jargon, superlatives, and unsubstantiated claims. What is left I call styrofoam copy. And when the resulting copy fails to persuade, the copywriter feels a sense of defeat. The copywriter still maintains ownership of the effort and sometimes the blame. So they begin to deliver copy that is designed to appeal to the editors and less to persuade the actual customers. It's safe, jargony, and corporate. We're told terrifying things, that people have the attention span of a goldfish, that millennials don't read, that we only have eight seconds to make our point. No wonder we're confused about how to communicate through copy. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to predict the success of their marketing campaigns. Marketing magic is real, and I'll teach you how to harness it. If it's words, it's copy, CTA, the form, the form headline, all of that plays a role and really doesn't have a lot to do with design. Design is kind of secondary to this. Well, data is coming to the rescue. The words we use to establish our value and persuade visitors to take action can be tested. And my guest today is going to talk about this. Olivia Ross is the Director of CRO at Directive Consulting. She's a designer who turned into a conversion optimizer and believes that copy is at the core of any great customer journey. Let's find out what she's learned on her journey from designer to conversion optimizer. I love that you come from a design background because one of the one of the things that I hear is that conversion optimization and data, it is contrary or gets in the way of the creative design process. Did you have any struggles with that as you went from classically trained designer and then uh, joined a PPC agency and they're all about the data? And if the data says your design's not creative and interesting enough, then that's it. Any, any conflict between those two parts of what you do? Yeah, definitely. I think designers were all taught Form does follow function. We're aware that, yes, it needs to work before we think about how pretty it looks, right? That is that is not as important. So um, it was a challenge for sure because what I thought would work, what I'm seeing, you know, on Dribble or Behance or landing page design, it all looks so beautiful, but it wasn't taking into account the messaging. So I think the real struggle for me getting started wasn't so much as the layouts and attracting people's attention that way through color and layout and all of that. But what I was saying in the message, like I had no idea that maybe I should have a CTA that says get demo instead of continue, right? Those little things we weren't taught. We just didn't think about how we were conveying that message to our customers. So were you doing designs with lorem ipsum sit delore and stuff like yes, that? Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I've had people bring me wireframes with that and ask me if I thought this would convert. And 
uh, I can't tell without the words. Uh, and I don't think uh, anybody, there's probably a genius designer out there that can um, increase conversion independent of the, uh, of the words, but I, I've never met that person. Yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to meet them if they can make it happen. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, the, and, and uh, that, was a, that was a learning curve for me and the other designers there uh, for sure. And the designers currently under me, I noticed when they first started, it's about the aesthetic, the aesthetic, and nothing about the content. So it takes time, uh, but it, it definitely changes conversion rates for sure. Was there an aha moment when you went, oh, you know what? I didn't even think about the, the, the words on the button or I didn't really even think about the, the words in the headline. I was just worried about the, the font. Was there, a, was there an aha moment with a client or a project where you're like, oh, I see what's happening? Yeah, it was, I want to say yes, but it was probably over time, you know, many different events brought me to that point. But it all started to click when my boss at my old job sat down with me and explained the why. You know, it's it's hard to understand when you're told, just make the button this, do this for headlines, do that. I need to know the why. If you explain the why to me, I can better understand it. So I, I think it's true of most of us. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I think about... I want to say four months in was when I finally understood, okay, I really, really, really need to pay attention to messaging here. I have to look at customer reviews. I cannot take what the client is telling me at face value because maybe they don't even know what their customers value the most. So you suddenly had this realization. How did, uh, so we know you eventually got into the, the, the purposeful design part and it doesn't take many tests for us to start realizing how important the words are. How did you make that transition before that, though? Did you um, did you have to s- come up with a process where you got that stuff out of the uh, out of the client? Yes. Was there some magic there? Yes. So because the the last company I was at was kind of a startup, there were really no systems in place. Our kickoff questionnaire was spotty at best. So that evolved over time, you know. And as the, as the designers grew, we realized, shoot, I need that answered. I need that question answered, you know. Um, why do people choose you over somebody else? Hey, can we talk to your sales team and can we get a demo of your product so we can really be sure and clear about what it is you offer? And really up until that point, we had a lot more angry clients. <laughs> we lost more clients because we weren't converting. So this was definitely a learning process, figuring out we need to be asking these certain questions, to the clients that we can get the right copy, the right layout with that page, the right offer to not waste their time. Because that, that company I was at, we had lots of small clients. And I don't know about you, but you ever noticed when a, a client has a small budget, they're very skittish. They're very concerned, right? That's all the money they have. So it was very difficult. You know, we had to get results fast for these smaller companies. So realize the, um, uh, I guess, the impact of copy. And I think maybe what we should do is define, what, make sure that we're thinking the same thing when we talk about copy. Um, at, at the outset, it is the words by themselves uh, that translate the, trans, transmit the message to the reader. Uh, but really, it is the copy and its placement on the page and the size of the font you're using and the color of the font you're using. And something that I think gets lost a lot of time the captions and the images that go along with the copy to help express that value proposition or that message that you're trying to deliver. So that's my definition. How would you how would you change that or expand it? No, no, I definitely agree with that. It's it's everything on the page and it all works together, uh, especially with landing pages versus your website. They all need to work together uh, to achieve one goal. So you work backwards, right, from your call to action and then all the other copy 
on your page needs to support that call to action. You want, okay, why should I get a quote from you, right? All right, and then we break down the benefits, the UVPs, and all of those things on the page. And the captions too, you know, or even those disclaimers, you know, credit card required, like that can raise conversion rates 20% just by letting people know they don't have to put in a credit card, little things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, doing it backwards is, I think, really important because most of us start, when we start a, a landing page, is we start with the corporate template. So it's got the navigation, it might have some stuff in a a right or left sidebar, and then we're filling in the middle. Or we're starting with a pre-existing template, uh, like we love to use Unbounce for our uh, landing pages, and we have some very high converting landing pages. But we start with a template that's got blanks that we feel like we should put things in. Talk a little bit more about what it looks like to start backwards. How do you back into a full landing page if all you're starting with is request a quote? So definitely, I mean, it comes down to first, we're having a kickoff call with a client. We're setting up goals. So whatever the goal is, that's where we determine, okay, this is these are the type of pages we need. If the client says we need to get 50 free trials a month, all right, let's start with free trial here. So now we know the offer that we need to go after. And now we need to look into all right, if I'm a customer and you're trying to sell me on this free trial, uh, what information do I need to know? Um, and what really helps us a lot, honestly, is third-party review sites. I, I, I skim and scan the client's website. I look at their videos. They're very helpful. But we found the most ammo from um, reviews. Uh, we actually have a client who we made a squeeze page for them to get a quote because we could not control that form process. They had, it was very convoluted. We just, we couldn't get access to it. So we made this landing page with just the get a quote button. And we tried out adding TrustBot reviews to the page. And I kid you not, the first squeeze page converted at 58%, which sounds very high, but it's a squeeze page. You know, there's no action happening, but a click. Yeah. You might want to define squeeze page just for those that are listening. When you say squeeze page, what do you mean? Oh, sorry. So just a a page to kind of get you to the next step. There's no real action happening on that page, but it's kind of pushing people to uh, where we want them to go. So they might click another button, which brings them to a secondary landing page. And then that that has a, a higher level call to action. Exactly. Exactly. So we made this page and all we did was add these three TrustBot reviews saying uh, this was for an insurance company and they're talking about, you know, they were really quick to get back to me. They saved me 50% all of those types of things. And we raise a conversion rate from 58% to 96% with a 95% confidence rate. I've, I've not seen that before, but again, this is not, if this page had a form on it, it's not going to be that high, but you get my point that just having that social proof is so important. That's why we really lean on those customer reviews to determine all of the language on the page. And so the customer reviews actually, you, you, you not only read the customer reviews to get hypotheses for what to say, but you actually brought the, those reviews onto the page to help build trust? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Social proof is king. <laughs> social proof is king. Say more about that. So we've talked about testimonials. What are some other sources of social proof that you use in your tests? Oh, tons. Let's see. So third-party reviews site badges are very helpful, especially with SaaS companies. So G2 Crowd, Captera, those go a long way. Also, case studies as well. I really enjoy using case studies. I really like just showing a quick blurb, leading with results. We had a client that created a construction management software, and uh, we were looking at their case study page. And what they had for their case study pages was just the client name, 
And that's pretty much it. <laughs> so I told them, hey, why don't we lead with results on these, you know, these, these banners so that people click in? And sure enough, that raised the amount of clicks, click-throughs on their case studies by 213% right? Because people want to know Panasonic saved 75% um, more hours just by, you know, just by using eSub, which was this client, right? So um, that is, that's the kind of data people want. Data, it definitely speaks volumes as well. And, you know, case studies are really important for internal sales processes. So you talk about B2B, Considered purchase, a lot of people are involved in the decision. Someone else is handling the budget and things like that. But it's not about them being read. It's about getting to the point. So the segment of people who will actually download and read the case studies is relatively small. But the people that can be impacted using the technique you just outlined is much larger. So I'm, it may be sufficient for me to see that you drop the name of the company, maybe it's a familiar brand, and you give me a few sentences on what the bottom line benefit was or the payoff was for that engagement. That's a that's a great recipe that I I, I think everyone should uh, jot down. If you're going to use case studies, use them as touchstones as much as something people expect to download and read. Exactly, exactly. And you, and when you put the case study on the landing page, you don't have to put the full blurb. You got to just put the results gain and maybe a quick testimonial from the point of contact from that particular customer or from that company that was a customer. Um, and it really helps us a lot. Uh, one thing to note when you are using testimonials, uh, a picture of the actual person goes a long way too. That lets people know, okay, you guys didn't make this up. This isn't John Smith. This is a real person at a real company. We did that. We showed them, look, uh, we definitely want to put the pictures and they were wearing like, well, we don't know if we got permission from them. And we were kind of able to convince them better to ask forgiveness than permission. And that was able to raise conversion rates for that page, just 36%. So just changing the, it was the same testimonials, but adding the photos of the people and their names brought more credibility to it as well. Yes. And um, that's in our playbook as well. And one of the hypotheses we have is that testimonials, yeah, you want to say, you want people saying nice things about you, but at the heart of it is that people want to see people like themselves offering testimonials. And so when you offer a picture, um, a specific name and a specific title and, you know, a business name that they can say, oh, big business, small business, et cetera. Um, I'm flipping through testimonials looking for people like me who have had success. And I think that's that's the rub. So, uh, again, another great recipe. Jot that down. Uh, I'll make sure we put that in the show notes because uh, I think those are two great things that should be in every marketer's playbook. Now, have we expanded the definition of copy here? Are testimonials copy or is that content? And is there is there even a barrier uh, for the different distinction between copy and content? Mm, that is a good question. And, you know, I've always considered copy as just everything that's on the page. Is it words? It's copy. Uh, because there's some, even with testimonials, there's some that are written poorly, like, great product, I recommend it. That does not give me anything to work with, right? So even ha- what testimonials you use is very important as well. But copy is everything in my mind, and I'd, I'd love to get your take on this. You know, it's your headline, the subhead. If it's if uh, if it's words, it's copy. CTA, the form, the form headline, um, all of that plays a role, and really doesn't have a lot to do with design. Design is kind of secondary to this. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I wish I had a, a good question, but I, I kind of follow this. So if the hypothesis is that video would help people understand this product or this service better, I consider that uh, structural. But length of the video, uh, what the title card for the video is, which is really, really important when you're using a, a video content, those I drop into the world of content or copy. And I, I think I tend to, to limit copy to words and pictures. Uh, that's the way I tend to think about it. But I, I wouldn't suggest that that is uh, the ultimate, uh, ultimate definition of that. Yeah, I agree with you. I I definitely would consider photos, GIFs, and videos as content, and then all the words, all the words as copy. Well, let's talk about some other strategies. So, copy. I think this is a really rich, rich category. We have a number of psychological effects that we can take advantage of. Uh, Cialdini did a great job of outlining those in his book, The Science of Influence. But let's start with something a little bit more basic. Long copy versus short copy. How often do you test uh, copy length? And any good stories from that? Yeah, um, pretty often, actually. That's actually one of the first kind of tests we like to do when we're starting out with a client. Oftentimes, we'll make a short, concise variant versus a long page. Um, And I want to say that one wins out more than the other. But it really is case by case. Some for an offer that's more top of funnel, you're probably going to be able to get away with a shorter page. You just need to explain uh, what the offer is, why it's valuable, what I'm going to learn in that white paper. Right? For a demo, we found that those, even with those, if they're more concise, it's better. If you're going to get a live demo, it's so helpful to have an overview demo video on the page because then people get a better understanding of what you're offering before they, you know, they sign up. And I think the pages that really do the best with long copy is free trials because at that point, if someone's getting a free trial, they're not going to get a bunch of free trials from your competitors. Like most, more than likely they've kind of honed in on what they want to try out. So it's important at that point to explain, you know, if you can, the pricing, what are next steps after that trial is over, what's included in the trial. Like, is it the full enterprise level? Is it, the, is it just the, the free version, you know what I mean? So um, yeah, as far as long or short, I've found different offers do better with long versus short. And it's always worth testing still regardless. Like if I can make a page more concise, I'm going to try it out. In other words, you do often see a difference. Um, and to an extent, we're testing the size of two different segments, someone who's going to want to read more quickly and someone who maybe needs more information because there are methodical visitors. There are spontaneous visitors and the spontaneous visitors just looking for a way to take action. Maybe they've already made a decision and they're coming back to the site to go ahead and and, and take advantage of that. But you brought up, you brought up something else that I think um, I'd like to put a little bit finer point on is there's two decisions we have to make. If I'm, deciding on having a demo, I'm really making a decision as to whether or not I want to have a conversation with a salesperson. If I'm deciding on a free trial, I actually am making a decision as to whether or not I want to try this product and and begin to explore uh, on my own time how it's going to solve my problems. And those, I'd like to hear if you take a different copy approach on those two things, because one of the things we see is that people will uh, sell the product on a page that's asking for a demo when they should be selling the demo. Right. Right. 
exactly that. Um, too often, I'm seeing pages that don't tell me anything about what I'm going to learn in the demo. So this is what we do for demos and, and free trials, and it's actually helped us a lot. We use a multi-step form. So we'll, we'll lead with, you know, hey, tell us a little bit more about your company so that we can compile a custom demo for you. So already at that point, we're making people feel that, hey, we're going to work with you to find a custom solution to your problem. We're not going to just give you the same runaround that everyone gets. So the questions that are usually on that form are going to be, you know, company size, industry, what, you know, aspects of this product are you looking to look at during this demo, right? And I love the way you set that up, if I can just jump in, because we ask those questions often and... um, Selling to marketers and other businesses, we know these are probably qualifying questions that if I don't answer them right, I'm not going to get a call back. You set this up as, hey, we would like to get some more information so we can give you a better demo. So you've actually given them a reason why you're asking for industry title, uh, number of employees, a time frame for the decision, things like that. So I just wanted to, I wanted to point that out because I think that's, I think it's really smart. I think it's important whenever you're presenting anyone with a form, you have to justify why you're, why you're asking for that information. So we start with that, those qualifying questions on the first step, fills out, they go to the next step, and then they're going to see a message along the lines of, great, you know, based off the information you gave us, we're going to be able to compile a custom demo for you. Who can we give this to when it's ready? And that is justifying why I'm asking for your email and your phone. Like, I got to give it to you somehow. So how do I get this to you, right? So that's how we justify why we're asking for the name, phone, and email on the second step. Also, the CTA language changes. So if I have get my demo on the first step, I'm not going to say get my demo again on the second step and irritate people because, wait a minute, you told me I was going to get it with that other form. Now you're telling me again? So the second step will say schedule my demo. So they're very clear, okay, I'm done after this after this uh, step right here. I, I'm, I'm good to go. And then, of course, your thank you page is super important, explaining next steps. Thank you. We've received your request. Someone will be getting in touch with you in the next 30 minutes. And ideally, if you can say which phone number they can get, they're getting back to them from, that's really helpful because oftentimes we have trouble with our, our client sales guys not being able to get a hold of them because they either forget they were going to get a call or they don't recognize the number or whatever it may be. So just being very clear with those next steps is important. And can you do something on the thank you page to encourage more people to answer and take that call or respond to the email? Yeah, I think it's just being very clear about next steps, who they should expect an email from and when. Okay. So I, I'm sure a smaller company will have an easier time of this because they could just say, Joe Swanson is going to be calling you in the next 20 minutes from this number. Bigger company, probably it's going to be more difficult because they have lots of sales guys, you know. But anything you can do to just personalize that experience and make people understand, okay, what's going to happen next? Alleviating those fears, the uncertainties. All right, you're going to fill this out. Then I'm going to go back to you in 30 minutes. We're going to schedule this through email. And then, you know, you're going to get your demo. So, yeah, just alleviating those fears and the unknowns. Well, there's something else that happens on thank you pages that Cialdini talks about, and it is called liking. So the fact that they've chosen you, that they've just finished uh, filling out the form, buying the product, uh, subscribing, uh, signing up for the free trial, whatever it might be. When they get to that thank you page, you have been elevated in their mind emotionally because they chose you and for no other reason. And because they wouldn't choose a loser, right? So that's a great time. That's probably the best time to ask for social shares if, if social is important to you. Uh, increased permissions, like um, let us send you our weekly newsletter, some things like that. Yeah, you know what? I actually like to, uh, I agree with you with the social shares. And then we also like to put um, links off, uh, from the customer's website 
on that thank you page to keep them engaged. You know, if I can keep you from while you're waiting for my phone call, if I can keep you from going over to a competitor's website and checking them out, I'm going to do it. So any relevant blog posts, uh, latest news, how it works page, you know, anything on the on their site that gives them more information about this product that they're going to get a demo for or, you know, a subject matter related to what what you do. I'll give this perfect example. So we were trying to get people to sign up for free trials. It wasn't working, wasn't working, wasn't working. So what we ended up doing is offering the newsletter and then explaining, you know, you're going to get tips, discounts, you know, special deals, whatever it might be. And that took off because we just needed their email for that. So then we used the thank you page of that newsletter sign up to say, awesome. Uh, if you want, go ahead and start, you know, browsing clothes, make your free account. And that was able to finally get account signups. I think it was at least over 50% increase. But before we weren't getting anybody to sign up. We were, I think it was about a 2% conversion rate. So using your thank you page to upsell to the next step in the funnel is another opportunity as well. I see. Awesome. Awesome. And I think that um, that's also a strategy you can carry over to mobile. Sometimes people can't sign up because they're in line at the bank and it's their turn or their table came up, but they're on their phone trying to solve this problem. Sometimes you're able to get an email address on the mobile side and then visit them either when they're at a more relaxed stance or when they're at a laptop or a desktop. Let me talk about a pet peeve of mine. And it's one of the things that that I really believe data helps with. And that is anybody with a copy of Word believing that they can edit your copy. So you've invested in a copywriter. You started with a good base. You've tested your way to copy that works. And then uh, a helicopter executive or someone parachutes in and decides that they want to make sure you make this mention and um, they think you could add a few more adverbs or adjectives to this sentence. How do you deal with that? Because uh, I, I think we've trained our copywriters to give us what they think we're going to accept rather than what is their best colorful, metaphor-laden or tested copy. Yeah, for sure. There's always other people involved in that decision process. And we, we run into that for sure with our clients, uh, decision maker wants to copy longer or something. And it's really just about educating people. So if you have a copywriter who's skilled in writing copy that converts and they bring it to that CEO, like you said, and they want to make it a lot longer, I think it's up to the copywriter in that meeting or whoever's responsible for the copy to explain to the CEO, this is the reason why I went with this concise copy. We've actually seen in past tests about four out of five times that a shorter, more concise headline converts better. We can move forward with the longer uh, headline and we can test it for you in a variant, but I just want to make you aware that you may see lower conversion rates. So anytime we get that kind of pushback, it's all about educating the person that is asking for that change. And designers, we're kind of trained from the get-go on how to do that because we get lots of pushback you know, on design. So um, yeah, it's just about educating. If they're like, no, 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 it has to be this way. All right. But you made them aware. And if you get lower conversion rates, more than likely, they're going to let you test your thing on the next variant. That's the cool thing about A-B testing. It's not like web design, you send it out, you, or you, you launch the website, you never see it again. You can keep testing and you're, you know, you're not just locked into this one thing. And so that's the cool thing about it. Yeah. And I want to lock that down. So there was, there was, two tactics that you used in this proverbial meeting. And it was number one, using past data, past test experience. And it was also using the testing process as a way to um, let the executive be heard 
but not let them come in and and potentially harm the 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 campaign by changing tested or proven copy and that is by saying you know we can test that we could do a variant on that and then the executive has to make the decision like well is that really what we want to waste this testing cycle on you know my ideas or is there something better and i i, I think in both cases you're using data to to manage a situation i think it can happen with executives it can happen with agencies that you work with that want to come in and change things uh, sometimes arbitrarily one more th- one more question i'm always fond of saying that as marketers we really shouldn't be writing our own copy am i just being a jerk is that is that real <laughs> If you have the budget to hire someone to come in-house to do all your copywriting, I agree with you absolutely. If you are in a jam and you, your team is lean and you're a startup, uh, I think it's important then if you're a marketer, you need to take a, a copywriting course, whether it's long or short. I don't care how long the course is. You need to definitely be understanding the fundamentals of copywriting, such as you know they versus uh, me, my or your copy you know, focusing on verbiage for uh, the the customer's benefits. You can do this with this product versus we do this and this and this and this. Um, So those types of things, I think if you don't understand the fundamentals, you're going to be hurting yourself uh, if you're not able to hire a copywriter. But if you got to do it yourself, then you better be reading as much content online, blog posts that you can about copywriting. Look at copywriting A-B tests and there's tons, you know, Neil Patel, Moz, like all those sites have tons of data that you can pull from there to show, look what we did with this test and we got these results and that should help you along your way. Okay. So uh, to summarize, if you can hire somebody, do so. And honestly, it's hard to find good copywriters, even if you are hiring, but I think there's a natural advantage to number one, them being able to put in time on the research into things that you as a marketer typically don't have time. Like you're going to sit down and you're going to type the copy into the landing page on your CMS. Second of all, if you um, if you are writing your own copy, test it, and it is something that is it's difficult. I so I, I you know I've been testing copy for 20 years, and I still wouldn't consider myself a copywriter, and and I don't write my own copy um, for our website. So uh, I understand that you've got a new guide coming out for CRO for 2020. Yeah, actually, I just finished it. It's the 2020 CRO guide, and it's on our website right now to make it easy for people to get there. Honestly, just scroll down to our footer. It's right there, or it's in our resources as well. So I wrote basically, you know, what is CRO, why it's important, the process, best practices, all of those things. It's a long read, but download it for yourself for later, you know, and read it at your own time. No problem. When you get back to the office... Go find your best performing copy, the landing page that is your workhorse or the email that delivers ready traffic to your site. How would you improve it? Would you try a longer version? Maybe a shorter version? Would you include an image in a compelling caption? Would you write a different headline? Write these ideas down. You might want to put them in a spreadsheet so that you can score them and sort them. You have begun to create your own hypothesis list. Now, how could you test the most compelling idea on the list? Most of the tools you use actually have the ability to test different versions simultaneously. We call this an A-B test. So if you're using landing page software, you have an opportunity to A-B test. Your email service provider will let you try different versions of your emails. And Google has a free testing tool built right in that you can use on almost any page on your site. 
Take your list to your team and see if they can help you design a test of one of these ideas. If it fails, you've learned something about what your visitors want. It's already there on the page or in the email. Ah, but if you succeed, you've improved the performance of a flagship campaign. Either way, you win. That's it for this week, scientists.